This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, how's your week been, mate? <laughs> Good, thanks, mate. It was quite funny that we did this about an hour ago on the show. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, this is our second second episode today. We've just recorded analysing everything, and it seems to have came as well at a time when I have a bit of a dodgy voice, which is not great. Hopefully, Dave hasn't clicked on, which is a good sign. I I hadn't, but I was thinking as Josh picked up that I've got a bit of a cold here. <laughs> um, I thought I'm not going to mention it because we've got the uh, we're meeting up tomorrow in London, aren't we, for the for the our conference? And uh, I thought I don't want him keeping his distance, thinking that he uh, he has to try and avoid catching a cold. Seems <laughs> like you've already got it, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, it is a nightmare. Funnily enough, I mean, I'm not sure there's anyone listening who will be going, but we, me and Dave will be at the um, Statsbone Conference in London on Friday at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Liverpool's Ian Graham actually is giving a talk which will be interesting and we will feed back I'm sure some of the points that he made during the uh, conference next week or next week's episode mm-hmm. but yeah if you go on and you want to meet up or whatever give us a shout uh, but back to today's episode anyway we have a games review in Manchester City and it's international week Dave so analyzing Anfield tradition we have a Q&A to conduct uh, Dave's got plenty of questions I've got plenty of questions so Without further ado, let's get into it. Um, so Liverpool versus Manchester City, Dave. Potentially one of the games of the season so far. Yeah, I think it takes that crown, doesn't it? Um, yeah, just like a crazy game. First forty-five minutes, I was, I was really surprised at how uh, how Liverpool struggled um, in terms of, you know, Man City putting on a bit of a, what was a, a, a passing clinic. Not necessarily, you know, creating a ton of high quality chances, although they did have a couple of big ones. Uh, but yeah, just very strange to see Liverpool being dominated in that way. Uh, you know, unable to to get ten yards further up the pitch, um, unable to sustain pressure, keep hold of the ball, uh, decision making was well off. Um, all things that we'll probably cover in a little bit more detail shortly. Um, but yeah, very strange. And then second half, completely different side, uh, and then it kind of evolved into that um blockbuster fixture that this this one tends to be you know it doesn't it very rarely let you down this game uh, and once again that second half was was the epitome of that just a really top quality game of football yeah i mean <laughs> never not like that <laughs> yeah that's me banging on the table saying what a game of football <laughs> <laughs> total passion that mate we're will be proud exactly mate. um but yeah, I mean, it, it has been a, a wonderful game over the years. It's absolute top standard football, high high quality football from two sides, um, and this was this was no different really. But I think at the start of the game, particularly in the first half, I suppose, but particularly at the start, I thought Liverpool started relatively okay, but I thought both teams were just generally a little bit off it, um, giving the ball away more sloppy than usual and. And things like that, and Liverpool did okay. I think for I think it was around fifteen minutes, at least in terms of territory and and things like that. But kind of gradually, City growing confidence, and they get they obviously got through the old the, the old fashioned um, twenty minute spell at Anfield that teams apparently want to get through so often. 
Um, yeah, I have to say, Josh, because I was texting you, I just didn't feel like that come, which was alarm bells straight away. I, I thought there was some pressure, but normally it's it's intense, isn't it? It's ruthless fans are open. It is like a bit of a whirlwind, and it just didn't really kick into gear. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, 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 when I said that, I didn't specifically mean that Liverpool were coming for 20 minutes. I just mean after around the 20 minute spell, seems to be when City started to play football, really. And for that, from 20 minutes onwards until the half time whistle, it was all City. You know, Liverpool couldn't really get out, Liverpool couldn't string passes together. Uh, and City created a few, few valuable openings, really. Um, but what, what was the problem then, Dave? What, what was the issue with Liverpool in the first half? Because I have some thoughts on this. I've obviously tweeted a video during the week of Klopp's thoughts on this as well, which I'm going to delve into. But Liverpool had a Liverpool were hanging on, really. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought um, Liverpool aren't really maybe accustomed to, to to being that a little bit deeper on the pitch, which is what I thought they were. Um, thought as a whole team they were just too deep um, which might not sound that big but it is in terms of almost acting on kind of muscle memory you know in terms of uh, choices and uh, angles and passion, passing options available these things when you get on the ball uh, and it was leading to really un- unusual turnovers um, I thought Henderson you know looked like a player who was consistently turning the ball over in really unnecessary circumstances there was one moment in particular where you get he, he seems to pick up the ball on the halfway line and, and, and can kind of take it down and maybe just begin to recycle the ball um keep it keep it in, just with liverpool keep liverpool in possession uh sustain pressure but instead he, he's, he's trying to almost force up and overs and and you know it, it was very easy for city to to deal with them uh and then start again and it felt like a wave after wave a little bit. Um, so yeah, I thought that was it. Um, if if what you're referencing, what Klopp said uh, in his post match is the same thing of what I'm thinking. You know, we talked about the, um, the the issues in the half spaces and the the spacing issues, uh, particularly for Henderson and Jones. Uh, I agree with that. I think that was quite obvious. Um, so do, so as a question, I think there was a, a cocktail of issues that. Uh, accumulated in this kind of very bizarre Liverpool first half performance. Yeah, I, I thought for the first half, Liverpool's problem could almost kind of be summed up in that I felt the team just simply showed City too much respect. Uh, I think that's probably how I would put it. Um, and then that obviously impacts your behaviour, impacts your tactics and things like that. But I thought the bottom line was Liverpool were too respectful to Manchester City. Um, it was it was the kind of performance with and without the ball, really, that suggests that maybe for the week, Klopp has put the fear of God in Liverpool players throughout the week. I'm not, I'm not sure he, he did that, but Liverpool played like a team that um, maybe doubted themselves, or maybe there's an element of that. Last time City were at Liverpool at Anfield, they, they won 4-1, obviously. Liverpool had major issues last season. Liverpool in a position at the minute where you don't really know how good they are, I suppose, given the return of Van Dijk and things. So, yeah, I think there was an element of that in there. But what it led to was Liverpool basically not being proactive enough um, on the defensive side of the game. Klopp referenced it in his post-match, went into detail about half spaces and things. Um, and 
for those who are watching, <clears throat> we don't have too many watches, we have mostly listeners, but for those who are watching, I'm going to share a screen now of what a half space basically is. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Forget that for a second. But what a half space, what a half space basically is anyway. Ima- imagine you're in, you're still on a pitch, and imagine you're Alison Becker, and you're looking straight ahead. What you're looking down, what you're looking at, is the, the centre of the pitch, basically. <clears throat> now, imagine you're Robertson or Trent, and again, you're in your customary position, and you're looking down the line. Again, what you're looking at there is the flanks. You're looking at a wide position, uh, the wide areas. Now, the space in between the centre and the wide areas, the space space in between the centre and the flanks is what is commonly deemed as the half spaces um, in modern football tactical terminology, if you like. And those areas are deemed by many, many top coaches now to be extremely valuable. Um, and whenever Liverpool faced Manchester City over the years, um, Klopp seems very, very intent on on basically blocking passes to the half spaces, keeping City away from the half spaces. I am going to share a screen now. <clears throat> um, this is for a piece that I produced, uh, Ruben Diaz finding Kevin De Bruyne in a half space type area. And Liverpool have typically restricted that over the years, but against City, Dave, they just didn't, mate. Yeah. Well, I think that the, the, be- the beauty of those areas from an attacking point of view is... Um, they tend to be really difficult, don't they, to um, to actually pick players up in them because it's this it's this middle ground between um, say say we use an example of the of a wing back, full back, uh, and a centre back. You know, it's that middle ground of who actually closes that space down. Same for midfielders. You know, if you think of the Liverpool setup, uh, is that is that on Fabinho to go there? Uh, is the number eight gonna gotta drop in and, and cover those areas? Um, or does one of the centre backs go step out? One of the wing backs come in. If one of the wing backs come in, that leaves space out in the wide areas. Uh, if, you know, one of the one of the eights drop down. Then does that then leave next space space in midfield to be exposed? So, it the the the, the, the reason why so many top teams really expose these areas is because it causes such a headache for an opposing side. And uh, Liverpool tend to deal quite well normally, but yeah, in, in the game for whatever reason, certainly in the first forty five minutes. Uh, they struggled. Yeah, and what also didn't work was, I suppose, Liverpool's attack. Um, there was quite clearly a plan of attack involving Sadio Mane, in which he would dart across Ruben Diaz to get away from Kyle Walker. And Liverpool tried to find them a few times, but with these weird lofted passes that were quite easy to defend. Um, so Liverpool obviously had defensive issues, covering half spaces and things, but in attack... Equally bad, really, just not using the ball very well. I think Klopp said the message at half time was to play the extra pass. Mm. Um, and in the second half of the match, Liverpool played the extra pass, shifted up a little bit higher in terms of aggression with the last line and with the um, with the number eights and things like that. And Liverpool eventually find a net through that movement from Sadio Mane. Mohamed Salah obviously gets the ball, moves forward, and Mane darts across Diaz in behind. And finds an S and Liverpool's second half performance was totally different. Um the numbers on the day uh 
very very even, probably a fair result actually. Liverpool finished with an expected goals of bang on one, and City an expected goals of one point one. Um, only six shots though for Liverpool, Dave. Um, twelve for City. So obviously we've highlighted so far this season the amount of shots Liverpool have taken. But we also highlighted last week how good City's defence is, and it did show at Anfield. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> you know. That's that's about. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what they are. I think they'd only maybe conceded something like six shots uh, going going into the Liverpool game. Uh, so it was always going to be difficult to create chances against this defence. Uh, but Liverpool did a good job of it, specifically in that second half. And then when you've got elite players, you know, elite finishers like uh, like Sadio Mane, who took his goal really well. The movement was really good. Uh, Mohamed Salah scoring probably the goal of the season. Uh, I know we've still got three three quarters of it to go, but you, you, it'd have to be something uh, special to beat that. So when you've got two players like that, uh, they can turn those opportunities into goals, whereas other teams would potentially struggle to do that. Uh, and obviously, I've struggled against City so far. But, uh, you know, on current form, there won't be many teams in the division who score two goals against this Man City side. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Mo Salah there. Yeah, I thought he was... I thought he was relatively quiet in the first half. Obviously, he didn't get the ball very much. But when he did get on the ball in the second half, I mean, we praised him last week, didn't we? We spoke about Luis Suarez and things like that. I actually sent out a newsletter on that subject. Um, so, again, do sign up. But I thought Salah was, was outstanding, really, in the goal that he scored. I mean, what can you say? It, it was quite special, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, I think the... Everything... The, <laughs> The build-up in itself was phenomenal. Like if, if that would have led to a shot that was saved, you would have probably still been raving about it. But just to have to finish as well. Um, he's literally he's a top player. Obviously, we. I mean, I don't want to repeat stuff that we we did last week. Um, we we waxed lyrical a lot last week about him. Um, but he he kind of feels like, despite being an elite talent for the like pretty much the entirety of his Liverpool career, he's almost just found another five or ten percent so far this season has, has kind of climbed to a climb to a new level. Um and that goal it's, kind it's, of summed it up. It's funny that it's kind of come on the back of a, of a proper preseason, which he hasn't had for a while. Um but yeah the goal that he scored he's actually scored one like that a few times. Um a game against Spurs comes to mind. A game against Watford I think comes to mind. Um and it is kind of messy esque when he does it. Um, you know, left-footed, jinking different ways, making players fall over their own feet. Uh, real problem. Not just players, by the way, like kind of elite defenders. Yeah, but that moments of individual quality like that are really, really valuable, especially in big games. And obviously, City had their own individual quality at the opposite end. Another left-footed player in Phil Foden, who again, really good performance, and he caused James Milner problems throughout the game, Dave. Um, one question that we got in the Q&A that I'm going to address now is would you have started Gomez over him? Uh, um, I mean with hindsight it's an easy answer but you know let's do it fair it's 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 before if we're talking before the game I don't know because if we're being brutally honest Josh we spoke about Milner in the past few weeks saying that he's a really good kind of utility player even now. You know, he'll he'll normally give you a solid seven out of ten performance, no matter where he goes on the pitch. Um so 
I don't know. I, I think that's really tough. I can understand. I'll answer it by saying I can understand why Klopp made the decision that he did. Hindsight, maybe you think Gomez, yes, uh, but I can understand why Klopp made the call that he did. Yeah, I mean, for me, I would have certainly brought Gomez on a half time. I was quite surprised that Klopp didn't. Uh, obviously, by that point, Milner was on a yellow. We were clearly getting done down that side. Foden was too quick for him. And it was a problem. And in my opinion, it was obvious Milner was going to get another booking. He shut off. Yeah. Um, so we, we got away with that one. But I, I would have brought Gomez on 45 minutes without question. Hmm. So we got away with that one a little bit. But yeah, going back to Salah, obviously the, the pair of them got a joint man of the match, I think, which is the first I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, but I, think one I feel thing... like Neville said it jokingly and he just kind of awarded it. <laughs> yeah, he stuck with it, yeah. But one thing I did really like, and I don't usually pay attention to this sort of stuff, but after the game, Salah put up a tweet or an Instagram post or something, and he commented, he captioned it, saying, um, we are going for the title and we have what it takes. Um, and I thought it was quite a statement for, for, for a player to make. Liverpool don't usually do that. Klopp certainly doesn't do it. It's kind of one game at a time type spiel. Um, but for Salah to go and do that after having arguably the, the best start of the campaign of any player, I thought it was real. It was a real alpha moment almost where Salah's kind of like, right, listen, we've played seven games. We know how good we are. We're going for the league, no messing. And I thought it was really. It was just kind of leadership type thing, like a proper captain shout, even though Salah's obviously not Liverpool's captain. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of a PG way of saying this. So um, it's a kind of sh- shirt off stand up moment, isn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. kind of like. Stand you, up and be cancelled. Yeah, because the thing is, you know, saying that, you, you become a target in the sense of it's something that you know will be used against you if you don't win the title. You know, if Liverpool don't win the title in May, you know, that'll be screen grabbed everywhere and then, you know, it'll be all over the internet. Um, and he's probably thinking, well, it's it's basically a public showing of backing yourself hugely to go and win the league. Um, but what it does is it, it kind of motivates players around you, doesn't it? And it, it, it probably is Liverpool fans who've seen it. It probably gives them a little bit of comfort or a little bit of, like, excitement that, that you know, this is... There's a lot of motivation in this ta- in this team to achieve that this year. Uh, so yeah, I can understand why it's uh, it's gone down quite well. Yeah, it was just uh, I just feel like given what happened last season, Liverpool have kind of come into this season with a bit of. I think Gary Neville's touched on it a few times, saying like there's it's they're not right or something like that. There's something missing or whatever. I don't I'm sure I agree to that extent, but there has been a bit of how good are we type vibe to it, and a bit of. Are we, are we going for this league? Or I don't know. There's been a, a little bit of that, I think, and I feel like Salah just kind of bent the lot of that. I just kind of put the mark down, put the statement down. We are going for the title, full stop. There's no no yeah. two ways about it. I get you. like is the ambition just to qualify for the Champions League again? Is it a top three finish? Well, it clearly now you know it's not. It's the title, clear yeah. title, title or nothing else. Yeah, and to see such a big player in the squad saying that just outright, no two ways about it, no no misinterpretation possible in a statement like that. I just thought it was it was nice, it was nice to see. Um, but I mean, we've got a fair few questions to get through, so we better move on anyway to the Q and A. Um, so we've got individual questions separated between us. 
but we have a few joint ones, Dave. So before we go into individuals, first question of the week is from this is a joint one for us from Dan Salisbury. Um and he says, just simple one. Who do you think has a higher ceiling? Curtis Jones or Harvey Elliott? Should I go first? Yeah, go on. Harvey Elliott. Yeah, I would uh, agree. Yeah. I, I do like Jones. Could go and be a very top, top player. But just based on what I've seen so far, I'm going Elliott. Just to do with age and what he's producing. I will say Jones has really impressed me. Mm. I think Jones has got a high ceiling, but I think Elliott... He seems to have a different brain to a to a teenage player like that. He just seems a, a, a step ahead. Um, really, really high potential player. Mm. Um, the difference between them is about two years, isn't it? Two or three years. Yeah, um, yeah. something like that. In fact, I think it's about two years. Yeah, two years. I think. Yeah. Mm. Um, so as injuries mount up in midfield. If you could recruit one player in January, which position would you go for? So I'll go first. I I, I would. It's a difficult one, this, but I, I would go for some form of attacking player. Um, I'm not sure whether I'd go for a fixed striker now at Liverpool or a Rafinha type player. Um, it's a difficult one, that, and the, the more time you give yourself this season, the more you'll know what you need, I suppose. But I would go for some form of attack in addition. I wouldn't be interested in an additional midfielder or a deputy for Trent or anything like that. I'd go for an attack and player personally, I think. Even though Liverpool's attack looks very good. So the the question wasn't exclusively like where the midfield you'd improve, it would just be somewhere on the pitch, is that right? Yeah, well, to be fair, he said that as injuries begin to mount up in midfield and filling the right-back spot continues to present problems. Right. If you could recruit one player in January, who would it be? Yeah, yeah, I'd probably be looking at one more attacker, uh, or or not not necessarily an out and out attacker, just someone who could maybe do a, you know, could play on a, uh, maybe a wide role, uh, could maybe go in as an eight as well, uh, could go a ten if Liverpool want to switch to bringing a ten into the side, just a bit of a kind of multifaceted player. Um, I mean, pretty much what you've just said, I guess. I'd have to agree. Yeah. So next question, Dave. This is a big one. This. This is the question of the week for me, and it's our first time in the spotlight, fantasy football-wise. So, you, I haven't given you this question, so I'll answer it. I'll start answering it while I read it out. Um, so, this is from Mike Wall. He says, please give us a couple of minutes of your best fantasy football ideas. Um, so, he wants a non-obvious pick. From defence, midfield, and attack, nice. uh, one for each. So um, I go first. He, he says perhaps a player who hasn't necessarily scored big points yet, but has great underlying numbers and potential. So uh, our first fantasy question, mate. After running the show for about three years, or something. I'm not happy about it, me. This is the type of question I'd like to I'd like to prepare <laughs> for. Well, yeah. I'm trying to delay it. I'm trying to give you a bit of time, like, but. Um, I go first. So, I think on the def- in the defensive slot, I would. Funny enough, actually, before I start mentioning this, listeners might want to know that after seven weeks, me and Dave, are, funnily enough, on exactly the same number of points, which is um, I can't. Know, it's quite weird, really, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, it is very strange. 
But I'll go first anyway. So in terms of a defender under the radar, I'll probably go with Cucurella at Brighton. I think he's in a really good defensive side and he's playing obviously as a wing-back. But I think he's played in the past, last season, as a winger and stuff. And against Arsenal in particular, he was causing major problems with his deliveries. So I think before too long, he'll have one or two games where he posts a clean sheet alongside maybe an assist and, and three bonus points as well. Um, do you have a defender in mind, Dave, or shall I keep going on? Um, I'm trying to. I'm going to bring my own team up. I'm, I'm actually in wildcard week, so I've got a few names right now. <laughs> Uh, maybe someone like Pinnocha, uh, Pinnocha at uh, Brentford, just because Brentford low-key look all right on the defensive side of the game. Um, I'm trying to look at the fixtures now. Yeah, then you've got Leicester, Burnley, Norwich, Newcastle all coming up. You know, it's a, it's got Chelsea somewhere in between there, so maybe you want to try and kick the bucket down after that game week before bringing them in, but... Um, if you are, I'm sure Brentford have only conceded something like, yeah, uh, Tabor. Yeah, I don't think they've conceded many, many shots this season. Uh, I actually think you got the um, the goalkeeper slot spot on this season with David Raya. Yeah, yeah, he's um, the only thing I haven't played him though recently. I've gone back to I, 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 I was jumping between him and Sanchez each week, but yeah, I uh. You know what it was, Josh? I wrote about him last season. Looked at his underlying numbers, and I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, he's he's a good he's a good goalkeeper." Um, so I thought I'll just gamble on him, and uh, and he's done quite well, to be fair to. So, so yeah, that's in, what I go with defender. So in midfield, I have just wildcarded actually last week, and the player that I brought in is the player a player that I brought in is a player I'm going to give a shout to now, uh, Brian and Bremo. <laughs> um. He did the business for me first week. Scored a goal against West Ham. Uh, yeah, another Brentford player, yeah. Uh, he's relatively cheap. And if you look at his underlying numbers, so expected goals plus expected assists minus penalties, he's currently seventh in the league. And the players he's behind, Salah, Mane, Antonio, Jota, Lukaku, Vardy. Now, all of those players have obviously retained big points so far. And Buemo hasn't yet, really. Um, but I think he I think he could have probably had double what he's had so far. He scored twice. I think he should have about four. Um, so, yeah, he's in my team and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm not happy I've been caught cold here, but I'll probably <laughs> go with it. Uh, it, it. It pains me to do this on the, on the Liverpool show. Because I don't want to get any stiff, but um, it would be an Everton midfield actually, and I'd probably go with the core um, just because of how they're playing at the moment. And he, he's got such a key role, he's got freedom um, to make late, late runs into the box, he's capable of goals and assists. Um, he's, 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 I think he's in fact, Josh, let me just bring it up now. Let me bring up the uh, FPL game two seconds. Yeah, there we go. So uh, Salah is the highest scoring uh, midfielder at the moment. Uh, he's a, obviously a twelve point seven mil player, uh, seventy points. Benarama is behind him forty four, and then you got the Corey forty three. So he's the third most points of any midfielder on the game, and he only costs five point six mil. Yeah, it's so it it's not a high, it's not really a high risk gamble. Is if you 
compared to say someone like a as our Pogba, uh, you're paying a few mil more. Fernandez, you're paying a lot more than not retaining. So yeah, you know, put your there allegiance allegiances to one side and go with a midfield. I think. Yeah, and then up front, I'm, I was debating whether to put this one out there because I'm quite happy about this. I don't want people to be aware of them too much. <laughs> um, but I went with Armstrong at Southampton. Uh, obviously, he was the top scorer in the Championship last season. Um, and this season so far, he's only scored once, but he's currently seventh in the Premier League for shots, total shots. He's taken more shots so far than Vardy, Son Young Min, Jota, Lukaku, and Buemo. He's, he's taken, he, he shoots a fair bit, and some of them are speculative. But in the next few weeks, Saints have got some decent fixtures, and with him being kind of the Danny Ings replacement almost. I think he'll do quite well. He's another one who came in for me on wildcard. Uh, I can't believe I'm telling thousands of people this. I'm disappointed in myself, David. <laughs> um, if, if I deliver you some points, give you some shout-outs, because I think he will do quite well, mate, personally. Yeah. Maybe, the, uh, maybe, but at the same time, if he doesn't, don't, don't come outside my house with picks. Yeah, don't hold it against you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the um, funny thing, if... I think I was tempted by him earlier on, um, and he scored at Goodison Park and on the first game of the season. I thought that was his. I think he scored with his first shot in the Premier League, and he's not scored since, um, or second <laughs> shot or something. So it's probably coming, isn't it? Um, uh, I'll probably go with just because I think Wolves are going to hit a little bit of form, and he's less obvious than him. And there's maybe um, He Chin Huang. Yeah. Um, I think there's potential in there. Bring up, yeah. So he 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 played 27 minutes at first, then he played 45, uh, and then he started and played pretty much full 90s in his last two, um, and obviously scored twice against Newcastle. So maybe again, if you're looking for something around the 5.5, 5.6 mil mark, um, I go there because. On the game this year, that your value is kind of your midfielders, isn't it? Uh, where that's where all your budget's going. So you probably need a couple of cheap forwards, uh, and maybe he's one worth having a gamble. And you know him and him and his, hopefully Lincoln. You no, know, he's assisted them twice in the last game, so maybe a sign things to come. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, so uh, thanks for your question on that one, Mike. Interesting, mate. Um, so final joint one uh, from three different people, actually, really. So we've got well, Genevieve... Like as, in they've, as in they've come together to ask it or the same <laughs> question. As in roughly the same lines, yeah. Okay. So we've got Genevieve Chua into Alia and Tahir Iqbal who ask basically about Klopp leaving. Uh, big shoes to fill if he leaves in 2024. Who replaces him, basically? Will Gerard be ready? One of them specifically asks how good Potter is. Um, any thoughts on that one, Dave? Potter to Liverpool? Well, yeah, just generally in terms of who would who would you replace Klopp with, and I suppose whether Potter would be a contender in your eyes? It depends what he does between now and when Klopp leaves, to be honest. Um, he's clearly a really good coach, Um his side play really good football. They're finally lo- looking like they're starting to be competitive in terms of results. Um, so if he was con- going to continue that 
upwards trajectory, then then yeah, you know, maybe he is an option. The only thing is though, with Potter, um we've talked about this on other shows, but <clears throat> what what Klopp does really well is this kind of high high intent, you know, this high intense football, this as he's called the kind of rock and roll football and stuff and uh, sorry, heavy metal football. You know, it's a lot more severe than uh, rock and roll, but he's got this heavy metal football and this brand that he's brought to Liverpool, this lot of intensity. Potter's kind of the other side of the spectrum. He's a little bit more possession-orientated, you know, um, controlling the ball, passages of play, long passages of play, uh, building your way to the opposition's goal. And I just think that's a, that's a clash of styles there. And could you go from one to the other in a seamless transition? I'm not sure you could. So... Yeah, maybe the different routes. I'd be I, honestly from things I've I've read in, in and then I know someone who used to work under him. Uh, if he could kind of uh, carry himself in the same way Klopp does, I'd be looking at Linders. You know, genuinely, I'd be genuinely considering. We've talked about him before, and stuff I've heard behind the scenes, he is just in, insane as the, the kind of level he goes to. Um, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, Linders is very, very good. I would not be surprised if that was a thing. And Liverpool tends to do that. You know, Michael Edwards is supposedly leaving. And fairly recently, um, Julian Ward, I think it was, was appointed as Liverpool's assistant sporting director as a bit of a contingency plan. So Liverpool want to keep things as, as, as the same as possible. I suppose giving Linders a job would do it. Mm. But... Um, yeah, I think Potter's a really good coach, but again, it remains to be seen where he'll be by that stage. Still got plenty to show, I think. Gerard again, very, very encouraging. I do. I am liking more and more what I'm seeing from Gerard, and I think, I think Gerard would, across a lot of areas, be the most similar you could get to Klopp, specifically in terms of what he is as a person and how Liverpool fans would tie in with him. You you would get that a lot with Gerard, I think. Uh, and he's obviously a champion already. Different league completely. Um, so there's question marks there. But I think Gerard is around the neighbourhood when it comes to that sort of thing. And I think in the Bundesliga, there's a few candidates. Julian Nagelsmann is obviously at um, Bayern Munich now, which could be a bit of an issue. And beneath Bayern Munich, you have the two coaches who are at Dortmund and Leipzig. At Leipzig, you've got Jesse Marsh, who is American and has been through the Red Bull system. So he's about that style of play, you know, verticality and aggression, pressing, all that sort of stuff. But I think they're having some issues so far this season in Leipzig. So I think he has to prove a bit more before he was to come to a, uh, a club like Liverpool. And I think Marco Rose, who worked on the club as a player, is at Dortmund. Um, but again, I, I just want him to prove a bit more. Um, I'm not specifically sure he's as intense as Klopp either, even though he's worked under him. I looked at Munch and Gladbach's numbers last season and stuff, and they weren't that intense, but it could have been a case of the players he had at his disposal. But I think that, I think there's coaches around, um, but I don't think there's any obvious choice, really. I don't think there's quite clearly the heir to Klopp. I don't think there's quite clearly another upcoming coach who is of the level of Pep, Klopp, Tuchel. I think they're the they're arguably the three best of that type and they're all currently in the Premier League I think there's some other different types like an Antonio Conte 
and Allegri as Zidane, but I think they're a different type of football that I wouldn't bring to Liverpool personally. So it's going to be a difficult decision that to make, Dave. Yeah, I think I think Nagelsmann had he not been a Bayern Munich may have probably been the one that everybody was looking at um, from a Liverpool point of view and thinking he, you you could see that uh, transition fairly easily. Uh, but I mean, we don't know what's going to happen between now and when Klopp goes. But Bayern Munich are one of the few clubs that I don't think Liverpool could just go and pick the manager uh, with relative ease. Uh, and vice versa, by the way, you know, I don't think Bayern Munich could just come along and take a Liverpool manager either. You know, you're talking about the, the top clubs in Europe, and it's a little bit more difficult to move move along them because they're quite similar on the food chain. Yeah, so we'll start with the individual questions now. Uh, I'll go first. My one is from Jonathan Titcott, I think it is. Um, and he says, with the current understanding of players we're running down their contracts, who would you be talking to to get on our books after January? <clears throat> um, so I think it's difficult when it comes to players running out the contract. So I just, I just got up players who were expiring in 2022 according to transfermarket.com and went based on that. Obviously, you're not going to say the likes of Mbappe. It's a bit daft. So I went, I'm just going to go for a player in who Liverpool have been linked with in the past in uh, Dennis Zachariah. He's currently at Mönchengladbach. I don't think he's progressed to the level Liverpool would maybe expect. But he's a central midfield player, over six foot big player, uh, generally quite reliable and stuff. And I think he's a bit like a... He's a bit of a cross between a Wijnaldum type, a Henderson and a the, Decoric the type thing. Um but I'm not. I'm just not sure quality-wise he's good enough for Liverpool. And I think generally, Liverpool have seemed to have. They don't seem overly keen on free transfers. Usually Liverpool. So, if I had to pick one, I would maybe look deeper into him. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't really force that. I don't think I'd um, definitely pick up a free transfer personally. Why is he? Uh, I'm just as we're talking now. I'm just. I'm trying to find. I sure. I'm sh- sure. I saw a tweet yesterday saying that he was he was available. Did, is that right? Have you seen that? Well, it wouldn't surprise me if his if his deal runs out in 2022. They yeah. probably want to get a fee for him. Um, but Liverpool did try to get him when he was at Young Boys, mm. but they got Wijnaldum shortly after. I'm assuming instead. And Zachariah has been in, in the Bundesliga since, but I don't know. It's, yeah. it's potential one there, but other than him. A lot of the other players are getting a little bit past the age that Liverpool typically target. Yeah. Um, yes, Tom Stewart. It's happening to Stewie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's a good lad. I haven't to him in a while. Um, he said, all right, fellas, how do you think Klopp can stop the burnout of our core players? He seems to have serious trust issues in terms of using fringe players. Only two subs made versus City. Um, it was clear Henderson and Fabinho look shattered. Do you think we're missing uh, Wijnaldum already? <laughs> that could be two questions. I apologise. That's okay, mate. Um, yeah, it is. I suppose it's an interesting point, isn't it, about the the lack of trust? Um, I mean, if you have a look at substitutions used so far, you, uh, teams could have used up to twenty one. Um, the pool have used 18, only two sides have used fewer. 
Um, we did talk about it at the start, didn't we, uh, before the season started, that the squad does look a little bit thin in areas. Um, I think Liverpool have a really good kind of core 14 players, maybe 15, but beyond that, um, you know, it, the, the, the quality drops a lot. Um, how do you combat that? <laughs> I don't know. Truthfully, I think it's it's quite difficult. Um, and you've got to just rotate as and when you can, but when injuries come in, it's difficult. Um, the only thing I would maybe put on the table, um, and before we move on, Josh, maybe you'll have a quick quick view on this, is some of the fringe players that build up a reputation as being terrible, you know, your Origis and stuff, when they come in, they, they tend to do okay. Um, you know, as long as it's in the right environment against the right opposition. Um Tend to surprise, you know, there's times where you look at the starting 11 and think that that team may struggle today by Liverpool standards and then they, they perform quite competently. Um, so maybe it is a case of Klopp just picking the right moments to bring some of them in and, and maybe people stop expecting them to be horrendous because quite often they do all right. Yeah, I would agree. I think a few years back, he, he rotated quite drastically for the Merseyside derby. Um mm-hmm. Around Christmas period, I think at Anfield, Alana came in, Rigi came in, um, and Liverpool, Shakiri, yeah, Liverpool won pretty comfortably, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do think Klopp will start using these players, but it will be when he has to, basically, which is around the Christmas period. But up until now, Klopp does this most years. Up until now, it's just his best team most weeks because he can do it. Mm-hmm. So why would you rotate? You only rotate when you have to, really. Um, so I think we'll see rotation, but just not yet. Um, so I have a question from Larkin H. He references Klopp as a motivator, as a leader, references his ability to create culture in a team, but says, how would you rank him as a tactical manager? Seems at times stubborn. Um, yeah, and references Milner playing like Trent as a problem, because they're not the same player. Uh, so, in terms of this, Klopp is a a pioneer when it comes to tactics. Klopp is revolutionary with what he's done in terms of pressing in particular as a tactic on the attacking side of the game rather than the defensive side of the game. The whole gag and press, counter-pressing thing. Um, Klopp's revolutionised the game in a way. He's, he's the face of that. Um, and his defensive approach, you know, zonal, zonal pressing the it seems a bit like Arigo Saki's Milan, almost at times, the way they defend without the ball. <clears throat> uh, obviously, he attacks with eight players sometimes. So, in that sense, Klopp's really tactically advanced and ahead of the curve of, of many. Um, but then you can look at the tactical side of in-game adjustments, subs, and that sort of thing, maybe like a Benitez or like an Ancelotti or a Zidane. Um, and Klopp looks a little bit less inclined to do those things. But I think that just stems from the type of coach he is. I don't think he's the type to look at formations as the solution. I think he looks at his players as the solution. The players will solve it on the pitch. I think he empowers them to do that. And I think there's different ways of management. You know, Pep Guardiola when he's approaching the big Champions League semi-final, maybe we'll, we'll take the onus, we'll put the onus on himself to find the solution by coming up with some elaborate p- plan. Whereas coaches like Klopp, 
will trust the players to execute, basically. So there's different ways how you can view tactics and whether a manager's tactically good or not. I understand Klopp isn't the most adaptable when it comes to that sort of thing, subs and things and formation changes and stuff. But as a tactician, I've always felt Klopp's extremely underrated and he's, uh, as I said, very much ahead of the cave in what he does. Yeah, and he seems to surround himself with really good members of staff as well, to be fair, um, going back to his Dortmund days. Uh, Katie Kopp, does the FSG model need some serious reconsideration, specifically regarding Salah contracts, but also regarding financial outlay on players, aka, I guess, the money's paid out. <laughs> it's a great name, by the way. Yeah. yeah Katie Kopp. I, I do wonder whether that's birth name or, you know, something different <laughs> yeah uh, um, but yeah to answer the question um, specifically on the Salah thing I would be inclined to, to do what needs to be done to tie Salah down um, I think th- there's no kind of uh, one size fits all answer with this I think I understand why um, FSG are quite cautious in their approach traditionally with with players reaching these kind of twilight years um although Salah's only 29 coming up to 30 next summer but i understand why because traditionally that tends to be when players start to slow down break down pick up more injuries don't have the same impact for me though i put Salah in the kind of ronaldo and messi brackets you know he's a player he's an insane athlete really looks after himself doesn't drink you know his, his fitness wise is right up there Shows no signs of slowing down. Um, I'd make an exception for Salah. Um, but I, I will be dealing on a player-by-player basis. Uh, in terms of the comments regarding transfer fees, look, can, can FSG afford the, the City approach? Uh, I, don't, I don't think they can. Uh, you know, I think they, they're not dealing with the financial might to do it. And I guess this is, this is the way they have to function to be successful. So I've got a question from Joe Flynn. He says, what do the numbers say for Liverpool winning the title this year after these games so far? So in the past, we've used 538 a few times in their prediction model, and they have Manchester City as the favourites at the minute. 49% probability to win the league. Liverpool second, 27%. Then Chelsea on 18%. And then Manchester United on four percent, and then everybody else on less than one percent. So according to that, it's a three-horse race, um, possibly a two really. So I think Liverpool's numbers generally in the in the Premier League the performance numbers so far are, are generally really very good. Um, in terms of their xG, it's the best. Their xG against. Isn't the best, I'll be honest. Yeah. It's, it's it's floating around mid-table at the minute. Yeah, I had a look um, at that yesterday and I was like, Ooh, I, I probably won't drop that in the piece I was working on. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. pay shots quite high though, so creating quality chances as well. Yeah, well, that the defensive side will need work there, I think. But Liverpool's ability... Liverpool's players on the pitch, I always feel, even if the performance isn't there, they have these players who are just so good individually at impacting the ball going in the net or the ball staying out the net, that Liverpool will pick up results even when he don't deserve them. Specifically, Salah, Alisson, Van Dijk 
and Fabinho. I think are four players, possibly Trent as well, are players who would ju- just have a massive impact on Liverpool's ability to put the ball in the net at one end and keep the ball out the net at the other end, regardless of what's happening in between. Um, so, yeah, I think Liverpool have a really good chance of winning the league this season. Um, and I, I actually think, I mean, I'm we don't often talk about betting on this show, I'm not sure if we can, <laughs> to be honest, but I've got individual bets on Liverpool winning either the Premier League or the Champions League this season. I think it's highly it's highly possible that Liverpool win one of the two majors this season. Um, but, you know, we, we, we will see, really. And uh, we'll get a better vibe around the numbers as we move on with um, the rest of the season because the numbers at the minute, seven games played, a little bit unreliable at the minute. Uh, Rick Johnson, why are we not seeing Nathaniel Phillips, at least on the bench? Um <laughs> Straight to the point, but fair question, I guess. Um, for me, I think what it comes down to is who does he replace? You know, there's Liverpool basically in a position now where they've got um, all the centre-backs fit. Um, if you look at, I'll tell you what, I'll bring the squad up from, from the game on Sunday in City. So, start 11, quite obvious. Um, here's the bench. Canate, Keita, Firmino, Gomez, Oxlade-Chamberlain, Minamino, Tomiscus, Simakas, sorry, and Williams. So you think, who... That's Tomiscus, she was his name, by the way. (laughs) Um, It it just takes a while to compute in my head. Um, Yeah, no seriousness, though. You're saying, who does he come in for there? Um, You know, it's probably going to have to be one of the, what, Canate, maybe? Um, Gomez, but Gomez has that a little bit more... Uh, positional kind of versatility. Uh, Canate, you've just bought Canate, so why would you bring Phillips in, in his place? Uh, I think that's just what it comes down to. Um, I still see his future away from Anfield, to be honest, Phillips. Yeah, I agree. I just simply put, I don't think he's good enough, to be honest, to be making Liverpool squad. Um, I did think he'd play in the Cups, though, to be fair, and he didn't even get a game in there. No. Um, but yeah, my next question from Michael Lou. Or Michael Lowe. Uh, why is Salah contract negotiations dragging on? Give him what he wants. <laughs> uh, similar to what you just answered there, Dave, really. But yeah, I think for me, it's difficult to know the details behind it, but I would be inclined to agree, give him what he wants. There's no real. I think with the Wine Alderman, it was a bit different. So we tried to provide context around that. I understood that one. Although he's a big player, I don't think he offered that much in like. A quantifiable stance, like I've said that before, when it comes to Wijnaldum, um, compared to a player like Thiago, who's just a lot more valuable with what he does in terms of his actions and stuff. With Salah, incredibly valuable football player when it comes to winning matches, when it comes to your goal difference and stuff like that. Um, and if you look at Salah and you want to deem whether he's worth it, I think you'd have to probably work out what you would be giving him over the length of his contract wage-wise and think to yourself, for that cost, are we going to be able to get a player in who will do more? Um, And I think the answer is no. I don't think Liverpool can get anybody out there who they would be able to save the Salah money on, dedicate this money to the next player for Salah or whatever, the Salah replacement, and get 
the same degree of production, with the exception of possibly Kylian Mbappe. But by all accounts, he's going to Real Madrid. So that's off the table, really. Um, so, yeah, I would give Salah a new deal. I wouldn't think too much about it. Obviously, if we've got a negotiator, we've got to get the best deal and stuff. But the bottom line is you have to keep him with the club because he's just such a rare commodity. You know, he's left-footed, never injured, super fit. He's just the ultimate. He's just gold, really. Um, so you, you keep him at the club, in my opinion. And if you look at wingers in the past who've been at the top, you know, the likes of Cristiano, Ian Robin, Frank Ribery, these players were still going at the age of like 34, 35, and Salah's as fit, if not fitter, than most of them. So I can't see any issues in, in terms of decline anytime soon. Although I did see once regarding peak performances of wide forwards, in particular forwards, I think I read that they generally have a prime, slightly younger, a prime between like the age of 24 and 28. Um, but whether that's whether that's a one-size-fits-all approach to everyone, I'm not too sure. And there also could be the plot twist on that of um, would he adjust his, his, his kind of role in the same way Ronaldo did, you know, to kind of give that longevity of still being a, a top goal scorer, uh, playing more central and being, you know, kind of this elite player in the box, maybe. Uh, Catherine M. Hi, Josh and Dave. Hi, Catherine. Uh, <laughs> There's been quite a bit of discussion around Jordan Henderson's form this season. I was wondering if you could uh, have a look at his stats thus far, uh, see if there's any potential issues going on. Enjoy listening and watching the pod each week. Keep up the great work. Um, I did get asked to look at this briefly through the week. Um, and you know, There'll be a piece online if you, if you want to look at the more in-depth version, but as we're pushed for time, as a basis, as a summary, really, I think there's a few different things. But one thing in particular in recent weeks is I do wonder if he's maybe struggling a little bit as a consequence of um, what's gone on around him and what he's required to do for the team. So if you think of the first couple of weeks, that right hand side, you had Salah, Trent, Elliot, you know, all interchanging, uh, really. All three had a lot of penetrative with threat. It was, you know, looked very dangerous on that side. Big headache for the opposition. Triangles. Elliot, yeah, triangles, yeah. Um, Elliot picks up a really bad injury uh, soon after Trent's gone out. So thankfully not as bad, but he obviously, he's obviously sidelined. So now you look at that right side and you think, suddenly it's it's completely different, the makeup of that side, isn't it? And you wonder if he's under instruction to try and provide a little bit more uh, offensively, even though that maybe doesn't come as naturally to him. We talked at the top of the show, didn't we, Josh, about uh, those kind of up and over balls, those switches to maybe Mane uh, against City. Thought he tried a few of them, but they were easily cut out. If Trent's doing them, he, he probably does them with a bit more uh, malice, you know, a bit more quality. Uh, and so that's it. And, you know, maybe doing these actions uh, is leading to kind of giving them ball away, not putting his best performances and people picking up on it. Uh, so I just wonder if maybe that's one of the causes. Uh, and maybe also, Josh, dare to say it, he could just be slowing down. Yeah, I think I'm going to avoid that grenade, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so I've got a question from Raul McKenzie. Um 
He says, if Michael Edwards leaves next summer, do you think Liverpool will suffer in the transfer markets in terms of getting the best value for buying and selling players? So, yeah, we spoke about this briefly a few months back. It's a bit of a difficult one, this, because although we hail Edwards and Liverpool's recruitment has kind of transformed since Edwards took the sporting director role, it is still difficult to know exactly what Edwards is responsible for and exactly how good he is because of the structure that's put in place around them. Um, obviously, you've got Mike Gordon there. You have Jürgen Klopp and Klopp's two assistants who seem to be clued up when it comes to tactical profiles and recruitment and stuff. You obviously have the expansive data departments with data having a huge impact on Liverpool's signings and things like that. So it's difficult to nail exactly how good Edwards is, although he quite clearly is very good. So when it comes to his replacements, who is being lined up already, you know, in terms of Julian Ward being Liverpool's assistant sporting director now, it's difficult to know how good Ward is. You know, it's it, it's it's one of them that you just kind of have to wait and see with this one a little bit. I am inclined to think Liverpool will remain largely the same and remain largely fine because of the foundation that's in place. You know, it's it's just kind of like contingency plan, but keep everything the same. So nothing really should change too much. Um, and I hope it doesn't really. My my body would be more long-term with, obviously, the structure is very good and the structure is what, what's in place to, to allow Liverpool to win. But if you're gradually replacing each person in that structure with people who are just slightly less good, like if you replace Edward with Ward and Ward slightly less good and then you replace Klopp with a coach who's slightly less good, just gradually, despite keeping everything the same and benefiting from that, your organisation might just be less great because you've got slightly less capable individuals. and So that's my worry more long term. But immediately, I don't think Liverpool will suffer too much from losing Edwards, but it remains to be seen just how good he is. And it's difficult to, to absolutely commit to that opinion, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Rhino, quickly, uh, how do you think Liverpool would cope without a keeper as good as Alisson? His performance has been consistently excellent since his arrival, bar one or two mistakes and poor games. Uh, I think he's either been in the top two or the best keeper in the world for three to four years, and it's not talked about wide enough. Uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to kind of disagree. Um, how 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 good do I think Liverpool would? Or sorry, how do I think Liverpool co- would cope without him? Uh, I think they'd be definitely worse off, uh, no doubt about it, because um, he, I mean, let's bring his numbers up now, shall we? Quickly, so. I actually think when it comes to Allison, I think Liverpool have found out, not found out, but I think they've determined behind the scenes through numbers or whatever that goalkeepers in general in football are just undervalued. Yeah. And I think they've dedicated a large amount of money to Allison with that awareness. And since he's come in, he's kind of proved that. Yeah, exactly that. Um, we'll, we'll have a look at them next time. But in short, yeah, I think he's just. And it's such a, a crucial. See, a lot, a lot is made about everything that happens on the pitch, but realistically, in terms of value, it's in both boxes where the highest value actions take place. You know, from an attacking point of view, 
you could be the, the one of the greatest sides and build a play, you can dominate the ball. But at the end of the day, it's in the penalty box where you need to score your goals. That's where the, the, the high value is. That's the same the other way. You know, you can be a solid defensive side who may only concede three shots a game or one big chance a game. But if you've got a below par keeper or a keeper who's not up to that standard, I mean, think how many, or even this season, Liverpool have been great this season, but think about how many kind of big chances they've still conceded. Um, off the top of my head, there was against Norwich, there was a big one. Phil Foden last week had a big one, didn't he? Um, there's been a couple already this season. I think there was one at Brentford where he parries, parries it away. I uh, don't think it goes down as a save as such, but it's still big. You know, there's been a lot so far. And if they end up finishing as goals, um, then it could literally change the results. So to answer your question in short, yeah, he's uh, he's huge for this side. And he, whenever I talk about transformational signings, um, whether it be talking about Liverpool or talking about other teams and players they're potentially looking at, when I think about transformational signings in my head, two players always come to mind, and that's Virgil van Dijk and Alisson, because I think the pair of them um, took Liverpool just as themselves, just those two arrivals took Liverpool to a to a new level. Um, yeah, so that's that's how good I think he is. You're still on mute there, Josh. Apologies. Uh, yeah, so I've got a I've got a message from Joe Calvary. Uh Pretty sure Joe's a regular listener, so thanks for your question, mate. Um, he says lots of discussion about Adeyemi lately. Uh, thoughts on him as Liverpool signing? I don't think we've flagged him, have we, Dave? On the on this show, Karim Adeyemi. No, we haven't. He's um, yeah, he's he's kind of I suppose the next big thing out of Salzburg. Salzburg seems to have this mad conveyor belt where they just produce and produce and produce. Obviously, they had Erling Haaland. Haaland leaves. They bring through Patsendacher. Patsendacher leaves, and they bring through Adeyemi, who is German, um, nineteen years old. And he's currently representing Salzburg, obviously, and has done so in the Champions League. I've seen him in the Champions League so far this season. And I think in the two games played, he's won four penalties, <laughs> which is quite incredible. Um, and if you if you look at him as a player, one of the reasons he's won them four penalties is because he's absolutely lightning quick. He's off the mark. He's like uh, Sterling or Timo Werner. He's, he's really quick off the mark. Um, and he's just generally very, very dangerous so far this season in the Austrian Bundesliga. He's started 10, scored 8 and assisted 1. Uh, six goals without penalties, that is. But nevertheless, looks like a really good prospect and Liverpool have been linked with him. He fits the general style of play. He's, like a, he's that kind of player, really. But um, I've seen him linked a little bit with Bayern Munich. He was at Bayern Munich as a real youngster. I think they let him go. And I think I've seen the odd murmur that he wants to go back and prove himself there or whatever. So, And again, Liverpool usually invest big money in players who have proven their ability for a while. Mm. Uh, and Adeyemi hasn't yet. He's obviously only just based on the scene. And when players based on the scene, Liverpool usually avoid them for a bit. I'm not really, I mean, it's just an, an element of minimising risk, I suppose. But... Um, I think Adeyemi could deem himself to be worth it and Liverpool might just jump. It's one to watch, but they will run over, mate. 
So, uh, as usual, when it comes to, to questions, so what we're going to do is we'll round up here and we will address the questions we haven't addressed already next week. Those who haven't submitted a question, you now have an opportunity to, to submit one ahead of next week using the forms that I've sent out there. If you want to go and submit one, um, I don't know, send me a DM on Twitter for the link or check your inbox. We sent out the, the link on a newsletter and I put in there the blood red echo facebook group as well the link to, to submit questions so yeah do get in touch if you want to want to answer any next week um and dave thanks for joining us mate <laughs> yeah thank you mate so i was just uh, laughing i want i was gonna say to you before disclaimer saying don't ask us about things like the stadium <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's a, there's a few questions out there that uh, don't necessarily fit with the brand thanks for throwing them in but yeah. um it's only because yeah. we can provide no insight on any of that. So. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Exactly. We, we, we specialise, I suppose, in tactics and numbers and things like that. So try and stick down that avenue. But if you want to go on FBL route and stuff like that and general stuff like what's your favourite colour day and things, you can, by, all, <laughs> by, all, by, all, by all means do it. Um, but yeah, we'll be back week, uh, back next week to answer the remaining questions that we've got left and to preview Watford, I think it is. So yeah, thanks for joining us, Dave. And... See you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.